This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go... I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went and when I was off on my vacation, I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose of all movies to watch a three and a half hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, – we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be that you are always um charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, So be open and willing to to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people. And he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of, of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the, at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they, they had a, a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well. And I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa – and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was. And, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa. Um, and it's just a basic, it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I do a lot of coaching of couples, and I sit down. We do what we can to help them learn to connect and stay connected once they're married. And a lot of people think it should just be easier than it than it really is. It, I mean, true love means it should just come easier, right? Well, no, not always. 
it's hard. And one area that I found um, a lot of people are struggling with is they want to have a hobby or they do have a hobby and they can't they don't necessarily share it with their partner. Uh, it might be easy to love your husband's fishing when you're dating your boyfriend and you're loving each other and you, it's the cutest thing because he wants to go fishing and you want to fish with him because you're dating and it's exciting and you can go out there and while you're out there fishing, you're talking and it's so fun. But that doesn't always last. Very few couples I know are sharing the hobbies that uh, that they that they could be sharing in life. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Maybe one way to find um, some time to be together is if you could find a way to, to leverage your hobbies, your toys, your leisure time in a way that uh, you could actually do some fun stuff together. For example, here's some rules for you. Remember, it takes energy to make passion, right? So if your marriage is running out of passion, then you got to have energy. And apparently, as we learned this last weekend, there's a lot of people using Pokemon Go as a as a great partner building activity. My daughter, my son-in-law rode their bikes with their baby in tow and went all over their town playing a silly little game together. But um, what it did is it created some energy. It created some passion. They were sharing something. I have family that play tennis every you know day, every week together and uh, as a couple, and it creates some energy. It allows them to not only go do what they both love to do, but to do it together. They can play against other teams. It creates some uh, fun teams um, activities, but also dating opportunities. So if you want some more energy or more passion in your marriage, then you got to figure out a way to invest energy together. Another thing you can do is to do what you can do together, not what you can't. Um, as is obvious, right? At some point, you're going to have to give your limited energy on something. So the dilemma is one person might be a better bicyclist than the other. So honestly, I don't want to ride with you because you ride too fast or you ride too slow. And then we spend our entire time fighting about what we can't do. But maybe there are ways that we can find something that we can do together. Maybe we can't necessarily do our long ride of our bicycles together, but we can go on a bike ride, a short bike ride every every couple days. There might be something that um, you like, that I like. It might simply be that you, you may not love being outdoors and camping but maybe we rent a trailer and you stay in the trailer and we, we go camping via trailer instead of roughing it out in the out in the backwoods. Another goal or another tool that might help us to bridge our hobbies so that we can have some shared hobbies together is um, make up new things together. Make your marriage not be just what it's always been, but maybe there's something that you can do together that you've never done. So go try some new things. Maybe it's trying new restaurants every week. Maybe it's something about, uh, you know, going out um, and and trying a, a club or a dancing activity or a golf club program or a, I mean, there's so many opportunities in this crazy country we live in. There's, are you telling me there's nothing you two can't go find that you'd both be willing to try? It also might mean you may need to leave some of the, you know, your must nots aside. If you're somebody that says, I will never go hunting, you might want to set that aside. My rule is try everything twice, at least twice. Try it. Just try it. If it's legal, if it's ethical, if it's moral, try it. Remember, you also don't need to like it to do it. 
um, there's a lot of things in our lives we don't like doing, but they're important to do. And that is just as true in our marriages. I may not love doing some of the things my wife loves to do, but I, I can still like it because I'm with her. And I can go find some benefit, if even just the benefit is making our marriage better. You don't have to love everything, folks, in life to make it worthwhile. Anyway, that's a few tips for you to help you uh, bridge some of your hobbies, your habits, your goals with your partner. Got to start somewhere. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, oh, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that, right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness, which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up? I call it spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world. I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy. Sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you – um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up. To me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into – little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are, you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if, if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. 
little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, at the start of this year, the NFL announced that the St. Louis Rams would relocate to the Los Angeles, California, becoming once again the L.A. Rams. And the owner, E. Stanley Cranky, uh, has been pushing for this move for quite some time, seeking to capitalize on L.A.'s media market and therefore increase revenue. Right? Makes sense, right? Moving from St. Louis to L.A. in order to get revenue. This move, however, is one of dozens of examples that shows the current economic decline in many of America's Midwestern cities. While many of these believe it to be an issue of deindustrialization and trends in the free market, it may not be that simple. Our guest today, Brian Feldman, is a researcher, reporter with the Open Markets Program at New America. He says that the problem is actually a result of decisions made by presidents and lawmakers in both parties influenced by a handful of economists and legal scholars, and it has quietly altered federal competition policies, antitrust laws, and the enforcement measures over a period of the last 30 years. So why are all, why are all of these Midwestern cities seeing such heavy economic blows? Well, let's turn to our, our good friend Brian Feldman and his article, How America's Coastal Cities Left, behind, left the Heartland Behind. Brian Feldman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great having you. I loved your article, man. You must have spent a year writing that thing. Uh, it has it <laughs> yes. got so much content. Sure. But it's great. We need to, we need to kind of know the history. And, and you, you did it. You kind of focused your entire article, not entirely, but a lot around St. Louis. Why, why, why start with the whole the, kind of the history of St. Louis? Yeah, so – there's a couple of reasons. I think in sort of Amer- the American mind, St. Louis has traditionally been sort of the gateway to the West, um, literally and figuratively. You know, there's the great arch there. Right. Um, and even at the turn of the 20th century, 1900, St. Louis was the fourth largest city in America. And this is when we have the World's Fair with this sort of just ornate, fantastic celebration. And St. Louis is really a hub of commercial activity as well as culture. And that's why in my story, I actually focus largely on the advertising community in St. Louis. I mean, which is, I had no idea it was that big. I mean, it was responsible for launching, you know, Coca-Cola brands and, you know, bringing Santa Claus to Coca-Cola, right. <laughs> which was a huge coup. But also, you know, a lot of the beer companies out there and, um, I mean, just major industries were using St. Louis as their advertising hub. And it became a city where they had a lot of talent. It, it became the, the mecca for advertising, right? Exactly. And what's really great about focusing on the advertising community to tell the story 
is two things is first advertising in and of itself is a sort of cultural experience for people who work in advertising you need to have artists you need to attract talent from all over and so that st louis had these um, people as well as other midwestern cities is one thing but the second thing too is the advertising industry stands as this really great proxy for all of the other businesses that were in st louis because at the end of the day, advertising is really a service to help other businesses sell and distribute their products. And that, all these people turn to St. Louis and what you could call the sort of literal breadbasket of America, you know, sort of shows us that here in St. Louis, there was sort of bountiful talent and industry for the past, you know, century. And that only started to change in the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. It's. It was interesting to me. One thing I didn't r- realize is um, how how much over the years, even over the last hundred years, how much government intervention had been there to to keep money flowing to the cities. Uh, I mean, like banks, like uh, the the reserve banks that were located in twelve locations around the country. Th- th- that was all designed to make sure that. Bigger outside organ or uh, the, the money could stay in these cities, so the smaller city uh, business people couldn't be pressed out by bigger cities. Exactly, and so in my article, sort of the main reason I come upon for sort of these changes we're seeing is this dramatic interpretation and enforcement in our antitrust laws, and sort of what you were just saying. I just want to take a really short moment to explain sort of what these antitrust laws were originally and then how they completely changed. So um, 1890, if we go back 100 or so years, this is when the first antitrust law passes, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And Congress, when they're debating this law, they end up looking to the Constitution for inspiration. And our Constitution in its most basic form is a document that aims to distribute and disperse political power. Uh, You know, this is through three branches of government. This is through having checks and balances, term limits, and all of this, of course, was in response to the complete and total power of the British. And in the same way that Americans have always been very distrustful of large political power, they sought to create the antitrust laws to distribute economic power. And this was in response to sort of a handful of individuals who had started operating the large trusts of their day. Um, And so it was through that distribution of power that we see all throughout America opportunity in many, many cities from Omaha to St. Louis to Sioux City, instead of just being located in New York or San Francisco and Boston, like we're increasingly seeing today. That's it, isn't it? It's so... The, the those the antitrust uh, legislation and and laws and the Sherman Act and the um, Federal Reserve Act of 1913 these things kind of de- they they um, they made it so that uh, there was access equal access you couldn't you couldn't have antitrust you couldn't go in and have big companies overwhelming the smaller organizations but have th- those then you're saying within the last thirty years or so have been reversed by politicians, by our presidents. Right. And, you know, the sort of interesting thing is that this 
is not just a Democratic issue or a right. Republican issue, but this was really a bipartisan strategy. And it was sort of a goofy alliance because you had these very radical left-wing um, you know, economists who were working with libertarians, two groups we usually don't think of having a lot in common. <laughs> and um, what they end up doing is sort of completely reinterpreting these antitrust laws. So what you know, we had just said before is that it's about distributing power, maintaining regional equity, ensuring that an individual has an opportunity anywhere, whether he or she is, you know, in the West, in the Midwest, in the South, to, if he or she's an entrepreneur, to go and start a business. Um, what's happened is instead of that sort of emphasis on markets, which are human-made things, as being a political decision, these economists said, Rather, the market is something that's natural or mechanical, and they decided that the thing that we really need to focus on instead is consumer welfare or efficiency. Hmm. So instead of it being uh, an, an equalizing power uh, tool, it became giving efficiencies to consumers – so I guess so I guess in the end we would supposedly pay less. Right. And we see that sometimes happening but what ends up happening is probably far worse and we end up paying more in other respects. Um when we see a lot of these mergers one of the first thing of course is that jobs are shed. Right. And um you know the larger the sort of combining firms the more people that are displaced and out of jobs. And, you know, another really important consideration is a lot of these companies that end up being bought out or that end up moving their headquarters, a lot of the community leaders which lead these businesses or companies also no longer have as much influence or sway. Right. Or, you know, these individuals who really are the people who know their communities best, instead, uh, now what happens is sort of a, a distance um, CEO or owner comes in trying to interpret what a community needs, and oftentimes that doesn't always work out for the best. And then, so, and so, talk to us about like what happened to St. Louis, for example, with all this deregulation. And I mean, I know a lot of it ends up being, in a weird way, focused on the airlines industry. Um, but it seems like it, in a way, some of the deregulation in airlines industries has gutted the Midwest. It's gutted the access to businesses. Mm-hmm. And talk, just talk about how that, how it all plays out today for these, for some of these cities, you know, in Wisconsin, in uh, Cincinnati, in like uh, in uh, Cleveland or Cincinnati as cities. Um, where else? Where else do we see this this kind of gutting of America? It's largely in these Midwestern cities. Um, You know, Cincinnati and Cleveland are great, great examples as well. And, um, you know, sort of bringing it back to St. Louis, there's this really interesting fact where uh, 1980, so this is despite some of the offshoring of jobs and the loss of manufacturing. St. Louis, for instance, had, um, I believe it was the second largest car manufacturing city after Detroit. Um, they ended up losing all that. But even so, still in 1980, St. Louis had somewhere, some 20 plus Fortune 500 companies, and their per capita income was 89% of that of New York City. So more or less the same. Hmm. Today, what we see is St. Louis 
now only has nine Fortune 500 companies. And a sort of interesting, timely piece of news is that there was also, I think, believe it was yesterday or two days ago, um, the German company Bayer announced that it wanted to acquire Monsanto, which is one of St. Louis's uh, hallmark companies. So that might drop down wow. to eight because that company would be headquartered in Germany now. But the other really surprising fact is that that per capita income dropped by 10%. So it's now 79% of New York City. And so largely what you had mentioned is the sort of deregulation of the airlines plays into this. And, you know, I think a lot of people can agree anytime we fly airplanes, it's becoming more and more just a <laughs> disorienting, right, right. harrowing experience. Um, and the other sort of secondary component of that, though, is that before all of these changes, airlines were in some ways seen as a common or public good as a way to connect businessmen, businesswomen, uh, community leaders to other parts of the city so that they could travel and do their jobs. Today, um, and the statistic is sort of scary, but of the largest metropolitan areas and regions, either one or two airlines has complete control and dominance over the routes um, that those customers fly, which not only results in higher uh, prices, but also less choice as to where individuals can fly to. So it's hard because if, you know, somebody in, say, Cincinnati wants to try to get the next flight out to New York to meet with somebody, there's not going to be as much availability as there are from somebody coming from Boston, San Francisco, uh, or even New York. Wow. In fact, in your in your report, you said in 2014, only 500 aircraft took off and landed daily at Lambert Airport, which is um, in St. Louis, right? A, fr- a fraction of all of the all time high of 1400 in 1997. So about a third of what was going on in 1997. Um, moreover, the airport serviced only seven, 1,176 international flights a year, down from 3,800 uh, in 2002. So the airline deregulation, um, the bank deregulation, all of this is – it's impacting and it's probably unduly impacting the inner parts of America, the inward heartland. Let's take a break. More with Brian Feldman when we come back, trying to understand what may be behind the Trump phenomenon as well because you know white middle america um they're jumping on the trump bandwagon maybe this is maybe it has something to do with this stick with this folks more with brian feldman when we come back this is the matt townsend show helping you lead a healthier happier life stick with us giving you the information you need the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, so uh, America's coastal cities seem to be booming, you know? You get in your airplane, if you live in the coast, fly over America, get to the other coast. You don't even have to deal with any of the space in between. The problem is, um, it's that uh, heartland, the Midwest, maybe the Intermountain area as well, it's struggling. And um, it might be what's behind some of the 
kind of anti-establishment politicking you see going on where three of the top three of the final candidates of the three two are pretty much anti-establishment as far as changing everything let's mix it up let's change it and brian feldman is joining us brian is a research reporter with open markets program at new america he previously worked for an education technology company in ohio and uh through venture for america and he's been his writing has appeared on bbc and uh, a bunch of other organizations he's here talking about an article that he wrote it really more is like a dissertation brian um it's how america's coastal (laughs) cities left the heartland behind but you've been basically teaching us that through regulation and um, a lot of different passing of laws and acts, the the United States was doing what it could to ensure competition, especially and and kind of equal access to money and and um, safe business practices for hundred hundred plus years. And in the last thirty years or so. The game has changed a bit with with deregulation, and it's it's been a bipartisan uh, maybe deal, right? It's been Republicans and Democrats doing it, and but in a, in an, in the end, it seems like, and what I'm hearing is, we we now have a lot of um, like you. I hear Donald Trump and others complaining about the trade agreements, so that would kind of be the international um, the international. Uh, lack of jobs going outside of the country. But we've also had issues with loss of manufacturing. Transportation issues have also been become a major problem. What do you what else do you see is happening with Middle America and why why really are people as angry as they are? So the other important thing I you know want to talk about quickly and you had just touched on it was banking as well. Um Banks are really, really important because they're the easiest way for an individual or entrepreneur to access capital to start a business. And so having these banks distributed across the country was a really great accessible way for people to get loans that they could then use to start their own businesses. Um, Again, this was a 1994 law that basically deregulated the banking industry. And so, again, all of the banks and access to capital has now sort of shifted left and right to the coast. In Missouri, there's this really appalling statistic. Um, You know, 1980s, there were 630-plus community banks. Um, Today, there's only 260. Wow. So that's a dramatic, dramatic loss. So imagine if you're somebody who is in a community trying to go out and start a business. Not only is that hard because your local sort of community institution is now either out of business or is merged with a larger sort of institution whose lender probably isn't as sensitive to that community which it's serving. But it's really difficult for those individuals to have really any say in their community. And I think that is the really big central thrust of what we're seeing this election cycle, both with Bernie Sanders supporters and with Donald Trump supporters, is that there's this anger. And I think in some sense, the anger may be a bit misplaced because I think the at the root of this anger is a frustration with that institutions, whether it's a big government or whether it's a big corporation 
that individuals are slowly losing control over these forces that now govern their lives. Right. And this, I argue, is largely the result of these dramatic changes that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years, and may I add, very quietly changed, um, that have completely altered sort of America's landscape. Hmm. Is it, um, I mean, it's it's interesting too, by the way, Warren Buffett, one of the the great businessmen of of ever really is is a midwestern guy and yet i'm going to bet most of his holdings are on the coasts right, <laughs> right? Exactly. so he yeah. just kind of lives there and then commutes out i guess but the mm-hmm. other thing that was interesting to me is uh is a big push in the media right so all a, a lot of the the midwestern folk feel like they're not even understood by the media necessarily and instead, we hear the stories of the coasts again. Yeah, that's a great, great point as well. Um, you know, we've seen massive consolidation in sort of the media industry as well, where now it's more or less the sort of Washington or New York bubble. And anytime a sort of Midwestern newspaper comes out, people here, you know, in D.C. often say, oh, OK, that's sort of nice. But, you know, if we remember back, you know, 1980s, the president every morning received not only the New York Times and the Washington Post, but also newspapers like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, hmm. all on, you know, sort of the death and briefing report. And now that's completely changed. And for these communities, that's also another really big issue, because, again, a local news organization is going to be able to best report on the community on which it serves. And so having, again, an outside interest that comes in and sort of uproots not only the sort of commerce and economic vitality, but also this sense of culture is really detrimental to a lot of communities. And as a result today, there's really very little that can be done to stop all of these changes we're seeing. What what would you say, uh, Brian, to these people that argue, hold it, it's just these states, these cities were behind. They just, I mean, Chicago, it's it seemed to be managing it, right? I mean, Chicago's a Midwestern state, yet aren't they doing better? I mean, are some states just playing this, this problem better than others or um, – or is there a, th- a flaw in your theory? So I definitely think that we've seen a very, very dramatic shift. And, you know, sort of the big thing people talk about is income inequality, which is absolutely an issue. But right. I would argue that the other secondary issue that is tangential to that, but which people haven't yet focused on, is regional inequality. And I think that we're absolutely seeing this. Again, if we go back... Only 30 or 40 years ago, looking at those per capita income statistics, which really is a measure of all of the sort of economic development of a region, all of those Midwestern cities, they were actually, if you look on a graph, it's it's really fascinating. They were all increasing and converging toward New York City, which was and has always been sort of America's best, um, you know, most Fortune 500 companies, et cetera. But ever since it's 1981, when you really look closely on the graph, you start to see it stops and then it just starts to go down this line. And so 
sure, there are some cities that have weathered the storm better than others. Chicago, for instance, um, you know, Pittsburgh is another city that in recent years has come back and rebounded. But we have to think beyond just Midwestern cities, also all of the small towns, heartland communities that once were a really sort of local and thriving place where anybody, if he or she wanted to start a business or to manage his or her own affairs, could go out into the community and Mm -hmm. not feel necessarily constrained by um, not only the lack of opportunity or choice, but also a sort of distant absentee owner dictating what that community can or cannot do. And you see the South as well, right? I mean, it's a it's they also seem to be struggling in many states um, for probably a, a variety of reasons. But one of the things I also find interesting is uh, we always talk about the I think it's called the blue wall. The Democrats kind of have this inherent supposed hold on all of these states. But the states historically are, are many of the states you're talking about through the Rust Belt, some of the Midwest states. And um, it seems like, in a way, a few of those might be more in play this year than ever before. And if if it's true, it might be exactly what you're stating, Brian. People have just had it. They've had it without with not having the opportunities that other uh, other states have had. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. You know, we see Pennsylvania perhaps now being in play as a yeah. swing state, um, West Virginia as well, and. Really, like you said, a lot of other traditional Rust Belt or Heartland cities, and I really, really do believe that this strikes at this core sort of um, industry in issue here, which is that this is not just a matter of jobs leaving the U.S. for Mexico and a lot of the free trade agreements, which we've been hearing you know, sort of in our political discourse over the last couple of months, but actually something that's happening domestically right before our eyes in America, which very few people are talking about, which is that we're seeing the complete sort of uprooting of cities and towns and businesses and sort of having those transplanted on the coast instead of letting Mm. them sort of bloom where they belong and where they've traditionally always been, which is throughout America. Yeah. Brian, what's a what's the solution? What should we be pushing for? What what do we do? So in my piece and what I also work on is trying to revive and restore our traditional antitrust policies. And it's interesting because in some ways the antitrust policies, some people say they're sort of like antiques or they're time-worn, but I like to think of them as a really nice piece of China, you know, so perhaps it's in our, uh, you know, living rooms or mm-hmm. dining room storage unit, but if we take it out and look at it, we see, wow, this is such a beautiful, amazing tool. Why have we completely forgot about it? And so what we need to do is enforce those laws again in the same way that they were enforced up into the 1970s and having specific emphasis on antitrust is not only about seeing what is most efficient for the consumer, but also which what is the best way to distribute opportunity and to ensure that there are not large concentrations of power that favor a handful of individuals at the expense of arrests at the rest of America. Totally. I mean, 
it's it just is interesting because we, we live in a very systemic world and you change one implementation of one antitrust policy and you may not see a big change for 30 years. Then you see it gutting America. I mean it's – it is. It's interesting and, and sometimes you wonder if the politicians see it, right, or if they're just – too close to the trees. You can't see the forest for the trees. Well, Brian, we appreciate you. It's great insight, and uh, I think it does. I think it adds a lot of insight into what might be going on in Trump mania and in Bernie Sanders mania. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thanks for being with us, and keep keep writing. You just need to turn it into a book, Brian. Just turn that big bad boy into a book. You're already halfway there. Um, it's great stuff. Uh, again, the article's name is, is titled How America's Coastal Cities Left the Heartland Behind. It's just solutions, folks. It's ideas. And there's a reason, you know, why people might be willing to forego hiring a president that is perfectly smooth uh, and eloquent in their language simply because they're so fed up with government. And they need somebody in there or believe that somebody in there that's a true blue business person might at least give them a shot. Anyway, it's, it's, we're here to inform, here to give you some information. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We're finding the good in the world and solutions to go along with it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, I've said it a million times. There's something going on. There's something awry in this country that uh, is, that's, you know, it's a burr underneath the saddle of America, and it's got the horse kicking. So we got to figure out what it is, and I believe Brian Feldman may be onto it. I call it just the gutting of America. If, if you live in certain places... Uh, you don't feel necessarily represented in the media, in the culture. You know, how many times have you heard people complain about Hollywood or the liberal media bias? And the liberal media might poo-poo that and Hollywood will poo-poo that. But the reality is who's complaining of it are the people in middle America. And if middle America is going to continue to be ignored – It's going to continue to create problems and uprisings. And I guess you could just call it racism. I guess you could just call it um, whatever, angry white people. But it's also they need to be heard, right? They need to be heard. And so we have to do something. There's something going on. There's a reason why uh, the, the political world isn't all that enthralled in a Hillary Clinton who really seems the most qualified of the three and yet also seems the most, you know, establishment and traditional. And then there's the crazy outliers that uh, seem to have the most energy and people that are passionate around them. And the reason they're passionate isn't necessarily because they're the most qualified, but because they're not establishment. So – just understand what's going on. And if whatever edge you're on, whatever side of the game you're on, just let's try to understand each other. Let's at least hear what's going on in middle America. Let's hear what's going on in those people that uh, need 
minimum wage. Let's not just poo-poo everybody and get rid of the discussion. Let's understand. That's all we can do, understand. Then take it to the ballot box. Anyway, that's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We will be back next hour, and we're going to be talking about libraries. What happens to a library when you are in the information age? Do you still need a building with books in it? Or can you just get a laptop or an iPad? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find solutions for today with your problems of today. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. If you haven't learned this yet, apparently there's there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your, your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, it could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down, (laughs) beat you up. But if you can't work with people, then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014. And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. The hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every she follows him everywhere. She's like just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm. Yeah. That's really good. <sighs> what should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? <laughs> okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. Well, at least a volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother, does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chicken. (laughs) Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they, it seems like it'd have a hard thing, it'd be hard to, like, stay on the boat for that little bird, right? Because aren't boats a little slippery as you're walking along the sides? What does she grab onto her with her little I think she uses her little legs. beak to, like, grab onto the rope in case she slips. Yeah, I bet you Monique's just learned to hold onto the rope. I bet you she could tie a great knot. Oh, yeah. All those sailor knots. Man. All I need to do is shout Monique and she will come to me. 
she's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose if you were going to take a pet around the world with you? What would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Yeah. I'd choose a tiger. Yeah, you'd be dead. Ah, that kid didn't die. Well, you're not that kid. (laughs) Not to be rude. I'm very good with cats. (laughs) Here, kitty, 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 kitty. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circumnavigating the world with a hen. Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from doing that. People matter. And so people's skills matter. We probably, in fact, I believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others, to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest. Instead, I think we're here to to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house – I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner, what are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively? And then get on it. Go look up something on Psychology Today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show, for heaven's sakes. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. And when I work with clients and couples, I cannot tell you. It's, it's almost every single couple. They, they just don't believe that, uh, they can do, that they can make a change themselves in themselves and make a change in their relationship by themselves. But one of my favorite quotes is, two heads are better than one. And one head is better than zero. I would rather that just at least one person gets the idea that the of the outward mindset where my problem is I don't have enough ability, skill, control, um, insight into who I'm dealing with in these other people. And if I could take instead of just reacting to what they're doing to me, if I could actually turn it and go understand – go listen, go be impacted, then it would give me more and more power and more and more insight in how 
to create change and how to create a healthier life. Well, yeah, but what if the person's abusive? Right. If they're abusive, you got to be careful, but the principle still applies. If you're dealing with somebody that's abusive, it would be better that you pay attention and that you learn and you understand and you have an outward mindset instead of thinking their abuse is because of you. And then you go inward. I'm a loser. I'm no good. And then you shut yourself down and become something you're not. Over and over, I've seen these principles applied in the couples I work with. And it's one of the hardest things you can do because a lot of times when you listen to this, it induces some guilt because you're thinking, I'm, I'm a loser. But the mere fact when you're, when you're starting to process the guilt, um, you're starting to turn inward, aren't you? And inward's fine, except it's not going to change the situation. It's not going to change the scenario. So the outward mindset might simply be, how do I start to take the values and the principles I believe in and implement them with others? How do I say that I want to be, you know, a loving, caring, amazing, wonderful husband, except I, I don't do that with my partner? And I, if I, what if I don't see my partner as a person? What if I don't understand their needs? When I work with my clients, so many times um, I'll have a part, one of the partners say, I know, I know, she's been complaining about that for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, so have you tried to understand it? Well, she makes no sense. Okay, but have you tried to understand it? Then all we have to do a lot of times is sit down and start to understand it. But there's this weird game that we play where we all of a sudden think our problem is our spouse or our problem is, um, you know, they don't hug enough. They don't touch enough. And that becomes the big problem. And as long as I'm fixated on that problem of my wife not doing this or my husband that always does this, that problem is outside of me. And I'm not going to start to do anything with it. Three basic principles, basic steps, uh, seeing others, adjusting your efforts, and measuring your impact. It's called change, by the way. You got to change. Well, when when are they going to change? You can't worry about when they're going to change. You got to change. Well, you make it sound so easy. I know. And you make it sound so complicated. (laughs) It's human nature. If you're mad, don't assume you're mad because someone else is violating your life. Why don't you just assume you're violating some principle? That's why you're mad. If you weren't violating a principle, you probably wouldn't have a need to be mad. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You. You sitting there. You listening in your car, wherever you are. What? What's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, oh, just chasing you. If I just, I just got to do this one thing. If I, if once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I, uh, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You, you can't fix certain things. A heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's it's a big deal, folks, and all of us are battling life. It's 
you know, I don't ever want you to get depressed because of we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know, if you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know, lose weight and start. You don't need to buy a scale. You don't need to do all that. Just whatever's on your list. I really need to call my kids, but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad. All right. So why do you keep being prompted to call your kids? I'm a big believer that uh, the answers are already in you. I don't – when I work and coach somebody, I don't need to to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows. But your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you, you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I, I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know, I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego and our ego's like, you got to beat everybody. You got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long-term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure. If you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? Basic. So be careful. As we, as we go through life, it's, it's every one of us. We're chasing, we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about. And we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves 
you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time, we finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. We've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? To become the change. A little bit of the change. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts. Hundreds of them uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, everybody. Little Arthur for you. You know, fun isn't hard when you've got a library card. Today we're talking libraries. So when I when I say the word library, what visuals enter into your mind? Maybe the old, uh, you know, that old librarian shushing you. Maybe you remember sitting on the floor as a child while listening to somebody as they read a story to you. Perhaps you were used to just spending hours searching things on the Internet. Uh, I remember, for me, libraries meant dissertations, master's thesis, thesis, and uh, a lot of just tough reading and work. But libraries, you know, they, they, they're a part of our past. They're a part of our history. And are they still a part of our future? You know, the research may surprise you. Here to discuss the health of libraries and the future is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced's uh, library system, Donald Barclay. Donald, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you here. What do you think? You wrote a great article in theconversation.com. Um, has the library outlived its usefulness in the age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. Donald, do we need to get rid of libraries? Well, um, I don't think so. I hope not. Yeah, no, that'd be your um, job. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, it only has to last a few more years for me. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, know, it, I, it, I was kind of surprised. I, you know, I started looking at, at the num- when I started looking at the numbers, the best numbers we have um, which are collected through um, an agency of the federal government about libraries just showed that um, public libraries are getting more use than ever. That, um, um, you know, going the, the statistics really only go back to about the beginning of the Internet, well, of the web, mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, early 90s. And it, they just showed a steady growth in the number of people using libraries throughout the whole internet period, um, and that that kind of surprised me actually. Um, and I I found a similar sort of pattern in uh, academic libraries. Although in academic libraries, what you saw was people were not asking reference questions that dropped off. People were not um, using print materials and checking them out the way they had been. That mm. dropped off like fifty percent over twenty years. But um, what you did see were were, people, were students going to the library to, for the, to the physical space. And I think there's a couple of reasons why the library as a place, as a physical building, is still important. Um, it's like a community, right, of, of, yeah, of learning, of access to information? 
exactly. It's it's a it's a learning place. It's also in a, in a world where you know, frankly, where there's so much concern about security and safety and things being locked down. I mean, I remember as a kid in Idaho, living in Boise, I could ride my bike to the state capitol and walk in the state capitol building and walk around and nobody even looked at me. You know, right. nowadays try that at the state capitol. Yeah. You know, you have to go through a metal detector, et cetera, et cetera. So, but libraries are the last place I know of where, in, in this country, where you can go and be somewhere and not have to spend any money and not have to have a reason to be there. Hmm. That's the true. La- I mean, as far as indoor places go. And that's why that's created a problem for some public libraries, which is a, uh, you know, a negative image of public libraries. If you go to a public library, especially in a big city, it's full of homeless people. Right, and that's something that has scared you know some people away from libraries. But in spite of that that negative perception, and you see that everywhere. There's even you know there's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa goes to the Springfield Public Library and it's full of hobos. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's mocked like that. People are still using libraries, still going to the public library because it's it's a it's sort of the last free indoor public space where you can go, and it's also that place where you can find some peace and quiet Mm. that's part of it you know there's not many places left where you can go and and not be distracted by everything that's going on of course we carry distractions in our pockets um that's hard to get away from but but they're they're kind of quiet distractions aren't they (laughs) you can just put your earphones in and quietly be distracted so it's an interesting thing i heard you say um, more and more people, so more and more libraries are being built, according to your research. Also, more libraries are being used and accessed, except uh-huh. we're not checking out the materials like we used to. That's been cut by half. Well, in public libraries. In public libraries, the, the, right. In public libraries, the checkouts have gone up. Oh, they've gone up. In, okay. In, in academic libraries, slightly. Okay. In academic libraries, they've gone down. Huh. Because so, yeah. in academic libraries, every, so much stuff is electronic. Right. Um, and students can access it from anywhere, twenty four seven. You know, and you know how students are, especially undergraduates. Um, they don't necessarily plan things way in advance, and if yeah. they can get a an article online at midnight, they're going to use that. You know, that's that's a natural way for for people to operate. I wonder if it's a millennial thing too, um, because I, when I was writing my and, and do, had had to do a lot of writing, I couldn't go to my office because then everyone would want me to work. So mm-hmm. I had to go and I couldn't go home because my kids would be there and I needed to yeah. write. So I would go to a library. But my son, and this was years ago, but my son, um, he he when he needs to study, he doesn't study at home necessarily. He would go to a public library. And sit there, and so it's. I, I see it almost as I thought it would have been lost by that generation, but um, apparently the millennials like it as well. Yeah, I think one of the things, and I've heard this from some of my my colleagues, library colleagues, especially in librarians in bigger cities um, like San Diego, um, Los Angeles, um, students are either living in dorms or they're packed into apartments to save money, right? And they can't study at home. Yeah, and the library is a place where they can go and study as long as they want. Now you can go to Starbucks, you can go to Denny's, but you got to spend some money, and you know sooner or later they're going to start looking at you funny if you don't buy anything. Right. And it's noisier. The you can go and stay there. Yeah. The uh, the other thing that academic students use library for is that they get lots and lots of group projects now, and they have to have a place where five, four or five or six of them can come together and work. 
and the library is you know one of the only places on many campuses where they can really do that and that's why we have a sort of a a dichotomy in academic libraries is people come for quiet space so you have to provide quiet space but they also come to do group work so you have to provide whiteboards mm. and tables and right. rooms and meeting where rooms. they can where they can collaborate and also I, the technology too is part of why people come to libraries and i think you know maybe during the the you know the 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 early days of the web you know the first 10 years of the web which is roughly you know the the web was really launched in 92 it caught on in the national consciousness in a big way around 95, where, where it was really, you know, everybody was aware of it. And But during those early years, libraries, public libraries especially, were a place we could go and get online. Right. And that was a big attraction. And that may have helped, in a way, save libraries through that period. Um, and, and But people still go now, and, and libraries are doing, you know, a lot of interesting things. Public libraries have, you know, places for groups to meet. So... There's a knitting club at the library. Uh-huh. There's a, you know, a, and it's a free it's a free meeting space. I think because right. I used to need I rented places out and you, you could meet at the library, but it was just always hard to get one because it was free and everybody would go there. Right, right. But so they 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 do provide those kinds of spaces. Um, that you know, a lot of public libraries are doing special spaces just to appeal to teenagers. So they might a, a really nice public library might have a children's room, but they might also have a, a teenager's room huh. plus, with a lot of technology and and furniture and things that appeal to teenagers. Plus, one thing I've seen, and this seems to be like libraries fighting the tech world, not fighting it, going with the flow is is the ability now to download uh, eBooks, to download mm-hmm. and download Audible audio recordings of stuff, right. and to just yeah. so I can actually access my library's databases from home and download right. stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a big attraction too. There's, and that, that's been an interesting problem because um, there've been some struggles with publishers um, who. The publishers are still trying to figure out how to make money on ebooks, right? Um, and so there's been a struggle, and in some cases, publishers will not allow their front list books, the, their best sellers, right, out there, to be made available through library ebooks. So um, th- that's a pro- that's a struggle, especially for public libraries because they really deal in best sellers. You know, an academic library. You know, a best-selling academic book nowadays sells a thousand copies worldwide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, l- academic libraries don't really have that problem so much. But a public library where everybody wants to read the latest, you know, Stephen King or John Gresham or, you know, Amy Tan, whoever, whoever, um, that that may be more of a struggle to get those kind of hot books on mm. uh, on an ebook format. Donald, let's take a break. Come back. I want to sure. continue the discussion and find out what what do we what does the future look like? And I mean, is there a day that everything will just be online and we'll just be accessing it somehow online, and then using maybe the library? It sounds like might be more of a social gathering, a community type of center. Stick with us. We'll have more with Donald Barclay, deputy university librarian at the University of California Merced campus. And uh, continue the discussion, folks. Interesting stuff. You never, I mean, what happens? Could the library go away? Oh, is it just an iBook thing? What do we want to do with this? Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do we still need libraries? I personally would argue absolutely anything that could foster community and a safe place for people to go and learn, uh, you know, and, and gather. What's the harm? And when you think about it, according to our guest, Donald Barclay, uh, it may be one of the only places we have to meet anymore that's safe and quiet and focused on learning that's not necessarily an, an, a learning edu- or an institution. Joining us on the phone is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced, uh, University of California Merced campus, and he's um, he is the author of an article, Has the Library Outlived Its Usefulness in the Age of Internet? You'd be surprised. Donald Barclay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So um, the technology is making it so – especially interestingly, I loved uh, – when I was getting my doctorate, I loved the ability to just research online, get the materials I wanted, and then have them either delivered to – if I wanted the hard copy, delivered to my university, go pick them up there. Or sometimes I could even actually download the the pieces. Is this going – is our libraries uh, – going to be more affected kind of just in the public library or more of the academic institutions? Where do you see both of them going? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, clearly the ebook is with us and, you know, you, you occasionally will read articles saying, well, oh, people don't like ebooks anymore. They're done with them. They're back on print. And I think that, um, you know that that there, we're always going to have print around. Right. It's a it's a different experience than reading an ebook, but I would argue that it's a very different experience to read a 2015 edition of David Copperfield than to read David Copperfield as a serial publication in in Britain when it was first published, right. or even reading it as a three decker novel. A different kind of tactile experience reading those things. Um, so, you know, the, the book will be around, and I think what we're going to see is that it's kind of, I, I use automobiles and horses as an analogy. We have automobiles, we still have horses. They're used for a lot of things, mostly for the experience, for, you know, recreationally, although there are places where horses serve real function, you know, where cars just don't work and horses do. And I think we'll always, print will sort of be like that, you know. Uh, most of our transportation will be, electronic, but we'll still use the book occasionally, or maybe even more than occasionally. Um, the other thing about the ebook, and I, you know, I have, I've had discussions with this, is people will say, well, you know, we don't, you know, ebooks, the experience, you know, it's just, it's not the same, it's not as good as reading a book, you can't annotate it, you can't flip through it like a book, uh, you know, and, and you'll, there have been studies where people interview college students, and the college students say, yeah, we prefer print to e um, and I think that I think there's some truth to that. The experience of the ebook lacks something, but it's also sort of using the car analogy. It's sort of like looking at the car in 1905 and saying, "Well, this is never going to replace the horse because this car, you know, it, it goes slow and it breaks down, and you know, yada yada." Well, cars have evolved, and I think the ebook experience will evolve a lot right. over time. Right. So I, I think that as e-book, the ebook reading experience gets better, people are going to be less likely to say, um, you know, I just don't like ebooks. I, I think also, on the other hand, though, um, the idea that everything's going to be on the internet. Well, there's a lot of obstacles to that. 
Um, and the biggest one is copyright issues, and that's what I was talking about earlier yeah. about you know publishers not wanting their their A-list material to be electronically available through libraries anyway. And there's also concern about from publishers about you know of course if I, if one electronic copy gets out there and somebody copies it, you know, uh, then nobody's buying my my publication and it's ruining me. So those are all those are all factors that are going to until they, those things get solved in some way, which they may never get solved. There's always going to be um, the desire to to keep at least some things from being electronic. We also have a big problem in in copyright terms. And you may have heard of something called the Hadi Trust, which is a big online library. Um, it has something like six million full textbooks that hmm. are totally available for people to anyone to read. Wow! And and they're mostly pre-1923 publications because those are out of copyright. Um, but what we have is a, a big gap from 1924 to the present, essentially, where, or well, at least till E really started to take over, where you've got all of these books that are out there, they, that they've actually been digitized. They could be made available. They're actually sitting in the Hadi Trust, but they can't be made available because they're still in copyright and there's, even though maybe this book hasn't been published in 40 years and there's no market for it, clearing the copyright is impossible because, you know, it's impossible to figure out who owns it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are going to be in copyright limbo for, for years and years and years, I mean, until they, they finally come out of copyright, which could be, you know, 50, 60 years from now. That's true. There's the, there's the whole money side of this, isn't there, and mm-hmm. the copyright side. And so... I mean, maybe I guess too. That was interesting because if uh, if I would sell a book and I wanted my books in the library system, which you would, that's mm-hmm. ten thousand books sold, right? I mean, to get one in each library, and there oh, might yeah. be two, so you could get yeah. twenty thousand books out there just by getting it in the library system. Which yeah, again, like you get- said, the average I think the average book sold is like a hundred books, right? Because there's hundreds well, of thousands of books every year. Well, scholarly books, you know, selling, yeah. you know, a few hundred copies is is doing okay nowadays. At least for a scholarly book. Obviously, popular books sell a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still sell. You know, Stephen King still sells millions. Uh, right. So popular writers. So going forward, well. I mean, they're going to have to get through a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of these. Um, the financials behind it. Um, but in the end, like you were saying earlier, this, this is more of a community kind of center. This is becoming – libraries, it sounds like, will evolve a little bit more uh, at least for the next near future until they can fix uh, copyright in, infringement and, and uh, find a way to make money and still get them to the libraries. People will still be checking books out at a higher rate. Than normal. I mean, it's been going up apparently, not going down, yeah. which is what everyone was assuming. But yeah. the community side of it is also valuable. As a as a li- as a kind of an expert in the field of library science, what I mean, there is a community you can't beat. Like you were saying, it's a safe place, and it's a quiet place and a place of learning. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah. I think that that a lot of communities value that. You know that that. Um, and, and you know you do have in every community you have a lot you know you tend to have a lot that have libraries you have a lot of library supporters and people are you know in general see the good of it they they uh you know they they understand that it's more than it's more than just about having access to books that it's 
it's I think it still is a symbol of of community. You know, one of the interesting stories about about public libraries was um, in New York City right after 9/11. Um, the public libraries were jammed. Huh. They, they were people were just crowding into them as you know as fast as they could because it was a symbol of coming together in community. You know, right. it was a refuge from all this horror that was going on in their city. Um, and I think that that still resonates with people. And you know, you can you occasionally hear you know you'll hear somebody go, well, you know, the argument being, well, you know, why do we need libraries? We're spending public dollars on this. Everything's on the internet. People have computers at home. They're just hangouts for hobos. Um, so, you know, th- there is that, that argument. A- and, you know, if you want to take a totally objectivist argument, you'd say, well, you know, if libraries were really that valuable, they could make it in the free market. But I think a lot of people, most people in this country anyway, don't see it that way. They see them as symbols of, of, of community. And, and the, even though public libraries are usually governmental organizations they're almost always city or at most county organizations right so they're they're not you know it's not like the federal government the federal government has libraries of course but it's not like every town has a federal library you know it's not people from dc telling you what to do it's your own community and you can go to the city council meeting or you can go to the county uh commissioner's meeting and speak about the library and tell them what you think about it so i think that 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 sense of it being a symbol of, of local control and, you know, people having a voice in things, I think that, that still resonates with people. Yeah. And, and certainly as a place to come together, you know. And, and, but unfortunately, you know, there, there are places where, in my own town, you know, they, they, they don't take very good care of the library. You know, they, they, um, they don't spend a lot of money on it. They, you know, it's kind of run down. It's not in the best place. You know, and that's kind of sad to see. But there are other, lots of communities, plenty of communities we can point to and go, you know, where libraries are well-maintained and they have great programs and they really appeal to the community. And, you know, if there's, you know, if there are a lot of Hmong speakers in a town, you know, a good public library will have things for them. Or if there's, you know, um, you know, a lot of places, a lot of Spanish-speaking people, they have really strong programs and collections that appeal to that community. You know, those kind of libraries... And that role of the library, I think, is still really valued, and pe- people get it, why it's important. Right. And you can almost see that they would quit investing in funding, believing that more and more people are going online. But your data, I think, you, you know, can't yeah, – it's I, not in it's dispute. Like I said, it surprised me. It's, yeah, it's, it's, that's why it's such, such a valuable uh, piece um, that you wrote there. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here. Donald Barclay. Uh, And your great work um, on this article, Has the Library Outlived Its Usefulness in the Age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. You can find that article on theconversation.com. Again, Donald Barclay is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced Campus. Thanks for being here, Donald, and appreciate uh, just your work. Opening our minds up, folks, giving you the information you need. The library's not dead. Go use it. And it sounds like it's going to be a while you'll be able to check books out because they're never going to solve the financial side of that. That's a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Libraries are here to stay, folks. 
just sit back and relax? What more do you need? But the problem is, a lot of these kids, I think, just go to the library to get away from their parents, hang out with their friends, and then they play video games. And we know where that's going to lead them. To the dark place. The dark place? Yeah. Have increased hand-eye coordination? Yeah, I guess that'll help you. There you go. In hell. (laughs) The dark place. We all know them video games, where are they going to lead you? Nowhere good. Could lead you all kinds of places. Do you, want, do you want some entertainment news? Sure. So we've talked recently about Angry Birds. Yes. The movie that just came out. It's a game on your phone. Yeah. And they made a two-hour, hour and a half, whatever how long it is, movie about it. I'm not sure what it's about or what the story is, but it seems like it's a little overkill for a game that the whole point is, you know, throw the bird into the wall. <laughs> then there's Weird. Te- they're making a Tetris movie. No word on what it's about or what the story will be or actors attached to the project, but Tetris is a movie. I know. That's so dumb. I told you about Battleship. Did you ever yeah. watch that? No, not yet. Okay. I, I, it, yeah. Not a cinematic masterpiece. Okay. That's one reason uh, I haven't watched it. There's some interesting like pieces of the movie that look in, you know, things, oh, that looks interesting. You know, yeah, but other right. than that, it's a Battleship, right? You're like right. B-12 and the, you know, something with Battleship. But that that is no part in the movie. Right. There's a point where they zoom out and there's a grid on the ocean, mm-hmm. but it still doesn't really. And they're killing aliens. Yeah, it's aliens. So it's not Battleship. You it's sunk something my else. Battleship. So again, they're, they're stretching these things. Well, now word comes. Fruit Ninja. Oh, brother. You ever played Fruit Ninja on your yeah, phone? Yeah, I did for about an hour. One they, they toss up a watermelon. Yeah, cut you it. You slice it with a sword. Occasionally, you throw a bomb up. Mm-hmm. And if you slice the bomb, then it blows up and game over. If you hold back and don't slice the bomb, you continue to slice fruit. Right. Now they're going to make a movie about it. Why? I don't know. Are there that many fans? The Hollywood Reporter says that there are uh, two writers... Okay. One that wrote uh, How to Survive a Garden Gnome Attack. I'm not sure what that is. We'll, wow. write, the, we'll write the script. Okay. I'll tell you their names, but you don't know who they are. There's no indication of what the movie will be about, but the story um, the, the story in The Hollywood Reporter acknowledges that the game is about ninjas with an, ex- an inexplainable vendetta against produce. Yeah. So maybe the adaptation will just run with that. Uh, I I think, again, this goes back to my argument that Hollywood has no talent left. The Angry Birds movie ended up being a bizarre screed against immigration, but nobody will care if Fruit Ninja rips it off and does the same thing. If you have an island full of peaceful ninja characters, evil fruit monsters arrive, and then ever, ever you know, whatever. It's just dumb. It is dumb. Let's not, let's not ever talk about that again. Speaking of, oh no, I lost my story. Nerd alert! Where did it go? Oh, you know, over here. Um, speaking of other things to waste your time. Okay. We've got one more. Do we have time? Yeah, we, we do. Time. Excellent. Stuff people watch on TV or on their computers now. With Facebook, they have this Facebook Live. Right. Oh, yeah. We, we looked we, at that. We looked day. at that the other day. It's on everyone's computer. If you have a camera, you can click on a button on Facebook Live and you're live on Facebook. And That's so weird. And people you've, that follow you can watch, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's also on your phone. The other day in Los Angeles, two comedians left their Nissan Leaf vehicle out on the out on, in front of the house during a weekly two-hour period reserved for street sweeping. And then they narrated a 40-minute live stakeout waiting to see how long it would take for the car to get a parking ticket. 
13,000 people at one point or another were watching, and they had like 31,000 total views. Wow, wow. So like, it was just a car sitting at the at the curb waiting for someone to come by and give it a ticket, and these two comedians sat there. I think it's and weird because you we clicked on a bunch of different areas. So you could go, but you didn't know what you were clicking into. Yeah. So all of a sudden you could click into something you just don't want to be watching. Right. Like that. The guy that wrote this this piece here on this uh, Joppa link, it's a car website. It says, as of this writing, 28,000 people. It moved up to 31,000 people. He goes, there's undoubtedly something inherently compelling about liveness combined with that crushing boredom many people seem to feel at their places of work. And you've got yourself an audience. I'm bored. I'll watch anything. Hey, there's a car just sitting there. Let's Let's watch this. Really? This is, I think, why America is suffering. Could be. Did the guy ever get ticketed? Yes, he got a ticket. How long did it take? It took about 40 minutes. Wow, that's pretty efficient. Yeah. So, I mean, they got there. It, it took care of, uh, I don't know what the point was. I think they were trying to do like a protest against. Uh, I'll bet the head, though, of that comp- of the organi- or the city that tickets was watching the show. And he's like, I got to get a guy out there. Possibly. And they dispatched an emergency ticket rider. Mm. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. Come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful simply because do you notice it makes you almost find your shame it almost makes you it made me look at my guilt it made me dig deeper into what i am doing and what i'm not doing with my own life those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress so the the greatest value of what i think i just saw with uh, dr mellon's work is that it gives me i took a space and in that space i went and started to make change when we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings something's going to change something's going to happen and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that so make sure you take time to look at your emotions you are not your emotion if you're mad you're not mad you're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. 
Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up. The coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500 plus a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play. And uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league. And my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Eh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? 
then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what what you're creating. And, And instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives. And now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win. Right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles, and I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you, you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the 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 voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on health care, that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? 
because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a out you know all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps, and you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting – you know, political arguments, or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. (laughs) Ben loves a good pile on. Um, You don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids, because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, Donald Trump. I think even Hillary Clinton, this whole idea of emotional intelligence to be a leader You have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders, um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a, I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, – went and hid emails because she's it, she it created fear it she's been in the spotlight forever the media has been harsh on hillary clinton and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own nonetheless people don't trust her because of that donald trump ends up saying whatever he feels and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him he reacts and crushes you Thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, 
by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? It might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we have been uh, talking a lot over the last few weeks and months on the show about truly the interdependent nature or state of all of us uh, as, as humans on this great big ball of mud, right? We feel like we're so powerful, so, you know, we have so many rights as individuals, except none of those rights matter if we don't have each other. We are truly a collection of people, and our evolutionary biology, as we've already talked about yesterday on the show, our biology even shows us how truly, you know, um, social we are and interdependent we are. And yet, we go into the ballot box, you close the little curtain, and there you are, all by your little lonesome, ready to make a decision. And you might have a very strong opinion about what you want in your president. However, we probably ought not forget, if, if we have any control and ability to do this, we probably ought to remember that it's really about the whole, not the parts that we need to try to maintain. The whole meaning there's a whole global community involved, there's a whole uh, country involved. There's a whole group of different parts of the country, um, demographics, ethnographics. There's sex differences. There's gender. I mean, there's um, there's every form of uh, religious diversity, race, color, you name it. And we're all still one, right? So when you're making your decisions, maybe we ought to be thinking that way. Our next guest um, is is a true expert in this topic and is the author of the book um, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economic, Politics, and Theologies of Rela- Relationality. Her name is Professor Marsha Pally. She is a professor at New York University in Multilingual Multicultural Studies and at Fordham University and is a regular guest professor at Humboldt University's Theology Faculty. And we are honored to have her on the show today. Professor Marsha Pally, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you. What a what an interesting topic for us. Talk to us about um, this uh, – you call it – uh, a covenant that we we kind of make with each other, um, a relationship bond that we make with each other that that we need to be remembering, I guess, in in all of our interactions in politics and in you know in world and governing. 
We do. Co- uh, Commonwealth and Covenant is not about partisan politics. It's about understanding the way we human beings are and the context with each other and the world that we're in in order to frame our economic and political policies and our voting patterns. But in order to do that, we have to understand something like the basic setup. And I found in researching Commonwealth and Covenant that it's not so much that we make a covenant with each other, is that we're born into it as a matter of biology, as a matter of physics, as a matter of the way we are. We're individual persons, individual entities with singular talents and abilities. We're different and separate from each other in that way. But we become who we are through layers of relationships with each other. Mm. That, that's a, that it really, in a way, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like you're born into a family um, and you, you have a responsibility to one another. Um, and I, I guess part of your point is we need to look at each other as that, as members of almost a family. I think our families include, again, as a matter of biology, physics, and our setup, our families include those near and those at some distance for ourselves. Our families extend out. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Of course, think of a young child who is affected by interactions with the parents, caregivers, siblings, community. But the conditions that all those adults live in are affected by people not so near. The education that the parents, siblings, and the child have access to are determined often by people not so close. The economic opportunities, the nutrition, the health care, the stress that a family is under due, due to health or economic duress. All these things are affected um, like in waves. If you plunk a pebble into a lake, you'll see waves going out. So our interconnectedness begins with those near, but immediately extends out. And it's just that that we need to take into account when we set up our economic and political policies. If we're interested in human flourishing, we have to take account of our setup, our individuality amidst our contexts and our relationships. Hmm. Is there something to understand how to build policies that will promote human flourishing? Is there something about economics and political, you know, policy making um, and governing that that makes us maybe forget this commonality? Not per se. Government, of of course, to begin with democratic government I'm speaking of, begins with the premise of the covenant. In the 16th century, the uh, thinkers in, uh, in Europe who were developing the concept of the fœtus, of the federal, the basis for our federal government, were drawing on covenantal theology as their basis, the idea that we are separate 
and we even may form groups that are separate from other groups. Nonetheless, we flourish by cooperative interaction and relationship amongst persons and amongst groups. And our idea of federalism, our system of government, is born in this religious theological principle of distinct beings, distinct groups, who acknowledge their reciprocal impact on each other and therefore take each other into account in moving forward. Hmm. It's a, it really is. You call that, I guess, it comes from relational theologies, um, which is it, which is a parallel of God and and us. I, I, and I'll have you explain that to us. Um, and yet, it seems like too we come down here and we are a Judeo Christian ethic in the United States. It seems, and yet we still are so partisan. Help me understand kind of the uh, relational theology concept and how it plays out or doesn't play out in our partisanship. Yeah, we have a a foundational setup, for lack of a better word. Some call it the way we've been created uh, to be. And sometimes we mess it up. But let's uh, talk a little bit about what that is to begin with. Um, We, very basically... We are each, as I mentioned, different, differentiated people, but come to be who we are through our layers of interaction. Now, science has been saying this for the last 50 or 60 years, but our faith traditions have been saying this for the last few thousand years. So one could think that our sciences are finally catching (laughs) up to our theologies. And I'll explain how it sounds in theological terms. And I want to take a moment to to tell your listeners that some people think of theological principles as an illuminating metaphor. Others think of it as the Word of God. But in both cases, we have much to learn from the principles that that we're going to talk about together now. They begin with the idea that that, uh, there's something, whatever, makes everything and any particular thing. There could be nothing. The universe could be one spectacular blob, (laughs) but it's not. It's full of distinct entities and specific distinct entities. And whatever is the reason for all of that, there's being something rather than nothing, and the particular things that there are, some people call that God. And we notice that any particular person is very different from whatever the foundational source of existence is. That is infinite, we're finite, that's not material, we are material people in our bodies. We're radically different from whatever the cause or reason or structure for all existence is. But on the other hand, we have to have something of the source of existence in us, I'm speaking metaphorically, in us, in order to exist at all. We have to have something of the source and structure of existence in order to exist. So this, this means at very bottom 
that we are both very different from the source of what makes everything. But on the other hand, we're intimately related to the source of what makes everything because it's in us in order to exist. Existence itself is a matter of difference, differentiation, and profound foundational relation. That's the universe we live in. That's the system or the setup we're in. Distinct, differentiated entities within profound relation in order to continue to exist. That's what people are. We are different and distinct and in profound, intimate relation with other people and our environmental surroundings in order to exist. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian and philosopher, called this being intimate with God, God being intimate in each of us. Hmm. And yet, on the other hand, biologists say the same thing, that our structure of human existence is a matter of um, relating to others near and far in order to develop our basic brain functioning, our intellectual development, our emotional development, and our moral development. Wow. So really, uh, let me just give it the layman's view, and you correct me, Marcia. Sorry about that. No, this is because you're brilliant. And um, so, so if whether you believe in a god, um, I'll, I'll do it with God. But it could be just the higher power, a higher source, the governing, the the all being energy, whatever we want to call it. We all are different, but we possess a part of that goodness, that God, that being, that power, that energy is one way to look at this, which would be why we all have to look at each other with some respect and recognize that we are all in relation to each other because we are all in relation to that God or higher power. But biologists say virtually the exact same thing because even though we're all so distinct and different, we all still possess the same DNA or DNA codes, genetics uh, that are flowing through all of us, which make us one, um, and why we are all so you know needed to maintain and watch out for each other. And physicists say very similar things. So, is that the point that even however you look at it, if you look at it through pure theology or religion, let's say, or through biology, we are distinct, different beings, yet one. Sounds right to me. You've you've made um, an interesting double point. Ooh. One is that we need to look at each other with respect and think about others sometimes quite at a distance from ourselves because they, too, have within them something of whatever makes everything. Ooh. And for some people, that's God. Yeah. Um, and, and you've made another point in your uh, recap there uh, that uh, our basic way of being is also in relation. Yeah. And uh, here's where the biologists and the physicists come in and are catching up to theology. Uh, they're noticing that without, let's take the biological first, 
without um, welcoming relations, the child cannot develop. Yeah. We know this on the positive side and the negative side. We know this, that us children, if children's physical needs are met, they're fed, they're kept warm, they're washed, their diapers are changed, etc. Let's do this, Professor. I've got to take a break, but um, we'll come back to that welcoming relation that we all need biologically and in life. Uh, excellent, excellent uh, start, I think, with Dr. Marsha Pally. We appreciate her. We'll be right back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, trying to uncover our individuality, yet our collectivity. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. Honored to be joined on the phone by Professor Marsha Pally. Um, she is a professor at New York University in Multilingual Multicultural Studies and at Fordham University. She's also a regular guest professor at Humboldt University's Theology Faculty and the author of the book Commonwealth and Covenant Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rela- Rela- Relationality. That is such a hard word to say. To say. Uh, Theologies of Relationality. Professor Marsha Pally, welcome back to the show. Talking with you. We, we love having you. And again, I'm just slow. I'm just slow, Professor. But I love this, this idea, too, that uh, you keep saying that science is finally catching up with theology. Theology has been teaching this, this theology of rela- relationality forever. And... Um, you and now all of a sudden evolutionary biology is starting to show how hyper cooperative we are um and and even i guess uh physics is now post quantum physics is now starting to see that connectivity as well before the break you were talking about the fact that in biology for example uh we have to talk about i think you called it welcoming relations where a child yeah. is born and we need to we have this special uh rule or or responsibility to to care and to to take care of the child and and help it learn the social skills. The welcoming relations I was referring to are necessary for development. They're necessary for physical, neurochemical, brain development, without which the child is impaired and is impaired um, especially in their ability to feel empathy, to see the long term to be able to compare past and future and to be able to make moral decisions. Mm. Let me give you some ideas about what the biologists are saying and then we can switch over to physics. Um, uh, Evolutionary biologist Donald Pfaff, for example, says that we are not only set up for relationship but wired for goodwill as a matter of uh, evolution. Um, And Edwin Fruvald calls this reciprocal altruism which even precedes our formal institutions and, again, appears to be hardwired. Hmm. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. Let's say you have two groups, and they're looking at some tasty bison to 
um, kill off in our hunter-gatherer stage. Hunting and gathering is 95% of human evolution. If these two groups go to war against each other, they kill off a lot of each other, they reduce their resources, and there's less of a chance anybody's going to get that bison to survive. But if they cooperate, then they get the bison and everybody eats. Uh, and biologists are finding the same thing with, um, with child-rearing. The more cooperative child-rearing uh, there is, the more chances that offspring will survive. Hmm. And at the level of biology, we shouldn't be surprised because this relational dependence exists in physics. Um, all, all our subatomic particles are distinct particles, to be sure. But their trajectories are formed in relation to the tra trajectories of other subatomic particles. Uh, for instance, here's um, physicist Carlo Rovelli. All things are continually interacting with one another, and in doing so, each bears the traces of that with which it has interacted. In this sense, all things continually exchange information about one another. Mm. That which makes us specifically human does not signify our separation from nature. It is part of that nature. It's a form that nation has taken here on this planet. In the infinite play of combinations through the, here's the point, reciprocal influencing and exchanging. Wow. That's at a subatomic yeah. level. That's at the subatomic level. And we shouldn't, therefore, be surprised that at the biological level and at the develop, human developmental level, we are also distinct, but we don't get to be anybody except through our relations. Mm. You, asked me a, you asked me a question a little while ago. Yeah. Um, so how come we're so partisan? Right. Um, it's interesting that um, all of the great faith traditions take uh, this into account. Um, noticing when we have free will, we sometimes do make the decisions um, out of fear, often, to focus on me and mind as a protection mechanism. The problem with that is that in the short term and the long term, that's not very productive, precisely because we're set up for relationality. Right. There are many stresses in history, um, not only scarcity, but I would say more the fear of scarcity, the anticipation or fear that somebody out there is going to take what you have. And this fearful anticipation often promotes a defensive response that leads to aggression against others. And, and yet, it doesn't work out very well for us. It works out into individuals fighting each other or groups fighting each other or what the great 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, mm. which he noted comes from fear, not more than anything else. And if you in a fearful mode, start thinking of yourself excessively, not just yourself in context with others, but only yourself, me and mine, my profits, my firm, my political party, me, me, me. 
then you are also apt to think that the world works that way, that others are doing the same, and you have to protect yourself from their chicanery and their anticipated attacks against you. And you get a cycle of attacks, and it's a downward spiral, because we flourish when we function cooperatively and taking the other into regard understanding our reciprocal impact and reciprocal responsibility. Hmm. One, that this, uh, Professor Pally, is one of the reasons that I think uh, evolutionarily, I mean, that why I think of my God and how that helps me. Because um, I, I look at it like um, I need, I can worry that someone else might take it or I could exercise and have fear or I could exercise faith in a higher power that is guiding me to not have everything in the world, but to become what I want or need to become. Um, so, so I guess my faith might help me through my fear. But um, we only have a few more minutes, and I've got to ask you this. So what does all of this have to do with when we walk into the ballot box? What criteria do we use to pick a policy or a president? I think we need to use the criteria that will lead to the long-term flourishing of people on on the earth. That means people in their contexts. That's the basic framework. And that's the basic premise of Commonwealth and and Covenant. We have to make our political choices based on uh, the universe that we live in and and the condition of, of our human nature. So uh, moving away from that fear-based perspective, we should recognize that we will all do a lot better if we go with the grain of the setup, so to speak. Go with the grain, if you believe in God, then of our created setup. Mm -hmm. Go with the grain of the way human beings and the universe is organized. And we're organized for reciprocal cooperation and taking that into account. Joel Hunter, the Reverend Joel Hunter, um, put it beautifully. He talks about asking yourself, when you think you're in a fearful attack situation, why is the other side for the other side? I'm going to repeat that. Ask yourself why the other side is for the other side. And now try to take that into consideration all sides have to take that into consideration when you negotiate solutions when you develop economic policy educational policy political policy and we need to be voting for people who appreciate that because that's our foundational setup that's beautiful and 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 basic right i mean it's just go go with the grain of how we were or how we've been created. I mean, genetics are teaching us, uh, theology is teaching us, and uh, Professor Marcia Pally, you're teaching us. Thank you so much for your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and for asking me such great questions. Thank I really you. enjoyed this. Thank you. You bet. Again, the name of the book, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rela- Relationality. <laughs> Relationality. You think as a relationship coach I'd be able to say that word. 
Professor Marsha Pally, again, is the author of that book. Uh, profound, profound insight. Um, genetics, physics, theology, folks. They're telling us that we are one, yet distinct. And yet we might not always act that way because our fear creeps in and, and starts to take over. We'll take a break. Come back. Hoping here on the show to help you see the good in the world. And the good is right next to you and across the country and across the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's so interesting to me. Uh, you talk to all of these academics who spend their entire life studying stuff. And yet, yesterday, I was just reading a book, just reading a book about spiritual living. And the exact same lesson was basically being taught. But there's, you know, however you see it, there is an interconnected nature to all of us. And if you look at when somebody or some group becomes too individualistic, too focused on protecting their core, they, they might just be flat out acting out of, faith, or out of fear, not faith. Isn't faith the, the opposite of the fear? And can you have both? Can I be full of fear and full of faith? I don't. I don't think you can. Um, I think at some point fear is going to drive us to become people we don't like. One of the big lessons I see when I'm working with my clients is no matter what happens in your marriage, even if you could blame 99% of the marriage failure on your spouse. I wouldn't. I would I would fully own my 1% or 10% because – and I, I was saying this the other day as I was training a bunch of coaches um, on my program. I'm sitting there talking to them and I said, no matter what, it is never a one-way failure of a relationship. Relationships don't just fail one way. Um. There's one relationship I can think of that would be your relationship with deity, your relationship with your God, that 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 that'll never fail two ways. That'll only fail our way. But when it comes to our marriages and our other relationships, there's always things I can do differently, especially the sign that we that we may be upside down in the relationship is if I have a lot of anger, if I have a lot of fear, if I have guilt, if I have shame, if I have blame, if I'm blaming, fearing, shaming, guilting, then I know that I probably have something in me that is not quite right. Because if what I was doing was right, wouldn't there be a peace associated with it? Doesn't mean there wouldn't be a trial still, because it would still be difficult. But I should probably have some peace. And I've noticed with these couples as um, they're really struggling and they're breaking up, um, I have some people that are way too insecure in order to, to even go through such a difficult phase as a divorce or a separation. 
They're just too weak. They're too dependent. I have other people that are that are just too rude. They're just too selfish. They're too, you know, bullheaded. Either way, whether you're too weak or too strong, it's a failure of us to be agents that are independent and able to act. And that's kind of what I believe Professor uh, Marsha Pally's teaching us here is at some point, whether you believe it through God and theology or through biology or through evolution and or through physics, um, through politics, there is a point where if you're too individualistic, you are going to cut your nose off. You're going to harm yourself. That's what I always say on the show. We are all one natural disaster away from realizing how important everyone is, right? We're one terrorist attack away from uniting again as a great country. And then fear operates and then we start tearing ourselves apart. So let's not do it. Let's just start seeing the divine spark, as Emerson called it, inside of each other. How about that? That's a start. Hoping to see the good in the world, right? That's the goal of this show. We'll take a break. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. 